2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now Paul has been speaking in this extended portion to the Corinthians, basically defending his ministry. It's sad that an apostle of the weight and the caliber of Paul should have to defend his ministry before anybody, much less these carnal, worldly Corinthian Christians. But it's because they were carnal. It's because they were worldly that they didn't see the value in Paul's ministry. So Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, poetically talked about his responsibility to God and his perspective in ministry. Look at verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul has in his mind that he's an ambassador sent by a king, Jesus Christ, and there he is, he's pleading. Make terms of peace with my king. My king offers you terms of peace. If you don't come and make peace with him, terrible things are going to happen. Make peace with him now. I'm pleading with you. My king is pleading with you. Now, in chapter 6, he continues along some of the same train of thought where he says in verse 1, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul sees himself as a co-worker with Jesus Christ. Did you notice that in the first few words of the verse? Workers together with him. They're partners. And since Jesus has given us, as it says in chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation, since Paul is an ambassador for Christ, he works with Jesus. Now, friends, is that an amazing job? How would you like that on your business card? Worker with Jesus. Partner with Jesus. Co-worker with Jesus. That's an amazing job. Workers together with him. Now, let's clarify this right off the bat. It isn't that God needed Paul or needed us, or needed anybody. Matter of fact, he could get his work done a lot more efficiently without us. It's that God wants us to be workers together with him for our good. It's like the little boy with the toy lawnmower following his dad on a Saturday morning mowing the lawn, right? Now there's the boy, I'm helping dad. I'm he- He's just in dad's way. He's more of a problem for dad than anything, but dad loves having his little boy there. I mean, if all dad was cared about getting the work done, he'd say, go inside, go watch TV, leave me alone. But he doesn't just care about that. He wants to do something in that boy, and he wants to be with the boy. So he says, let's be workers together. I think it's significant that it says right there in verse 1, we then as workers together... The word workers itself is important. There's something good. There's something important in work itself. So much so that God wants us to be workers together with him. Let me tell you something, friends, and this may come as a shock to some of us. God's best for our lives is never a state of ease and comfort and indulgent inactivity. Even if we did all those things together with him. What are you doing, bro? Hey, just kicking back with the Lord. Kicking back with the Lord. Workers together with him. 
Get busy with the Lord. Now, of course, as with any worker, there's times of rest, right? There's times of glorious, uh, you know, relaxation that God gives us. We receive every one of those moments as a precious gift from God. We want to work hard with the Lord. and We want to play hard with the Lord. But friends, there's a point where we just got to say we're workers together with him. God wants us to be that, not couch potatoes together with him, not pew potatoes together with him, workers together with him. We're workers together, as it says there, with him. Don't you love it that Paul, or the Lord here, never said that God works together with us. It isn't our work that God helps us with. It's his work that he asks us to do together with him. Now, don't we spend so many years in our Christian life trying to persuade God to get behind our work? You know, Lord, I got this great plan. If you just help me out with this plan, Lord, let me me explain it to you. You're going to love this one, God. You know, we just, oh boy, get behind my plan, God. You know, that's not God's vision. God's vision is, I'm doing a work. I want you to find out what my work is and work together with me. Another glorious picture that Paul delivers here. Remember in verse 20 of chapter 5 where he talks about being an ambassador for Christ? The picture of an ambassador for Christ is especially helpful in understanding the nature of being workers together with him. An ambassador can rightly be described as working together with his king, right? An ambassador works together with the government, with the king who sent him. Yet the ambassador himself has no power or authority or agenda on his own. It's all bound up in the king. Yet the king delegates authority and delegates power and reveals his agenda to the ambassador. And the king expects that the ambassador will fulfill it. So that's what Paul says. We're co-workers. We're workers together with him. And notice what he says, continuing on in verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul told us that God is pleading through the ministry of the apostles. Paul will plead with the Corinthian Christians. You know what it means to plead? To beg. Paul isn't too proud, isn't too proud to beg when eternity's on the line. Because I'm pleading with you to do what? You see that in verse 1? Not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, the Corinthian Christians had obviously received the grace of God, right? They would not be Christians at all had they not received the grace of God. Yet, having received that grace, they were at least potentially guilty of receiving the grace of God in vain. So Paul warns them, don't do this. There's this danger. You can receive the grace of God in vain. Don't do that. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? It means to receive the goodness and the favor of God, yet to hinder the work of grace in one's life. It means to receive the favor of God, but to fail in what Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Leave your finger here in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to read this one. You got to see it with your own eyes here. Otherwise, you might think I'm making it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Oh, this is so great. I love this verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me 
was not in vain. See, same idea. Okay, Paul, well, what made the grace of God be not in vain to you? What did it? He says right there in verse 10, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. See, friends, according to 1 Corinthians 15.10, if Paul would not have worked as hard as he did, the grace of God would still have been given to him. But in some measure, it would have been given to him in vain. Now, grace by definition is given freely. God does not give you his grace because you promise to work hard. God does not give you this grace because, well, there's a hard-working Christian. I'm going to give my grace. No, my friends, grace is given freely. Grace is, grace is given because God wants to give it. But when we receive God's grace, then the question is, what are you going to do with it? Paul says, I will not receive it in vain. Corinthians, I don't want you to receive it in vain. I want you to work hard so that the gift is given as effectively as possible. Friends, let me say it again. Grace is not given because of any works, whether past, present, or promised. Yet, it's given to encourage our work, not to say that work isn't necessary. God does not want you to receive his grace and then become passive. God knew that God gives his grace, we work hard, and the work of God is done. Many Christians struggle at this very point. Many Christians agonize over this. I come to you, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I don't understand. I don't understand how this works in my life. Now, is God supposed to do it, or am I supposed to do it? Yes, is the answer to that question. God's supposed to do it, and you're supposed to do it. Trust God, rely on him, and then get to work and work as hard as you can. That's how you see the work of God accomplished. If I neglect my end of the partnership, God's grace won't accomplish all that it could have accomplished, and in that measure, it's given in vain. So friends, with that kind of thing, saying, you know what? God's given me his grace. He's given me his gift. I'm going to go out and work. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to work hard and serve him. I'm going to see whatever I can do. I'm going to pay attention to my life. I'm not going to live a, a Christian life on cruise control, on automatic pilot. I'm going to go for it every day and live hard for the Lord. I don't want to receive his grace in vain. That kind of attitude is the kind of attitude Paul says in verse 2. He talks about it here. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. By quoting and applying this passage from Isaiah chapter 49, Paul wants to give the Corinthian Christians and us a sense of urgency. God has an acceptable time for you to work with his grace. You know when that acceptable time is? Tomorrow? A week from now? What, a year from now when things are a little more stable in your life? That's when you're saying you're going to do it? No. When's the acceptable day? Now. Today. You can't do anything about your failure to serve God yesterday. You can't do anything about what you hope to serve God tomorrow. Tomorrow's not here yet. But right now you can give everything you have to Jesus Christ. God has a day of salvation, and that day is not going to last forever. This is no time for Christian lives that are all about ease and comfort and self-focus. It's time to get busy for the Lord and to be workers together with Him. That's what Paul says. Paul took it to heart seriously. 
Paul said, that's how I am. That's what I want to be. And, and because of that, look what he says in verse 3. He says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. You see, the responsibility of knowing that he worked together hard with God's grace, that this was a call he would tell other people about. Paul talks about his own passion to be blameless as a servant of the gospel. Paul was willing to do most anything to make sure that he gave no offense in anything. You know, Paul was willing to say, I deserve to be paid as a minister of the gospel. Paul said that quite freely, but he said, I won't. Because in his particular situation, it made him more effective. Paul was willing to allow other people to be more prominent in his ministry. Paul was willing to work hard and to endure personal hardship. Paul was not afraid to offend anybody over the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he would not allow his style of ministry to offend anyone. Friends, that's a valuable lesson for anybody who wants to serve God. You better determine right up front, what are you willing to offend somebody about? Honestly. And you know what? There's, there's some uh, preachers or some pastors, and if this is their calling, if this is thing, God bless them. But they say, you know what? I'm willing to offend somebody over my political viewpoints. These are my political viewpoints, and I'm going to preach them from the pulpit. And if people don't agree with that, if they don't agree with my political party, with my political persuasion, with my political philosophy, then you know what? There's the door, because that's what we're about here. They'll say, I'll offend them over that. Personally, I'm not willing to offend anybody for the sake of the gospel over that. I'm willing to offend people for the sake of the gospel. You're offended over the gospel? Well, then fine. Nothing I'll do about that. But my goal is to take everything else out of the way. You may wonder what my political viewpoints are, what I think about politicians or political philosophy, or this or that. And you know what? If you or I were together with a personal chat, I'd be delighted to tell you. You know, I'm not going to talk about it here at the pulpit. I'll tell you about principles that have to do with politics. I'll tell you about the principles of what God says about how a nation should be governed and this and that, and because there's a lot in the Bible about that. But particular, peculiar political, you're not going to hear it from me. You know why? Because I don't want to offend anybody. Not over that. But I will offend somebody over the gospel. You don't like hearing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins, and it's only by his taking of sin that we deserve, that that's how you're ever going to find salvation? You don't like hearing that? Well, then, I'm sorry. That's not going to change. The other things, Paul says, I don't want to give offense in anything. Why? He says there in verse 3, that our ministry may not be blamed. Now, you know what I think is interesting about this? Is, of course, Paul's ministry was blamed, right? He was being blamed all the time. Paul, you're not spiritual. Paul, you're not with it. Paul, you're not sharp. Paul, you're not slick. Paul, you're not this. Paul, you're not that. What Paul meant is that his ministry could not rightly be blamed. Paul could not do anything about false accusations except live in such a way that any fair-minded person would see those accusations as false. That's all you can do. And then he goes on, oh, I love this. This is one of my favorite passages, verses 4 through 10 here. Paul is going to get out his resume. Apostle Paul, resume, writes it up here. You want to see my credentials? Paul says, I'm a blameless minister. I'm a blameless co-worker with Christ before you. And look, here's my resume. You want to see it? I'll read Paul's resume to you. Here it is, verse 4. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. There it is, Paul, minister of God. Here's my resume. 
in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live." as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. How'd you like that on your resume? Oh, he starts it off. You see the first thing? You always put the most important thing first, patience. That's what Paul puts. Now, please understand the word that Paul used there for patience. I could quote to you the pronunciation of the original Greek word, but that's really not important. You just need to know that the word that Paul wrote down there is actually very poorly translated by our English word patience. Because when we think of patience, we think of a passive acceptance. Patience is the ability to stand in that huge line at the home improvement store on a Saturday and not feel like ripping somebody's head off, which is a quality I do not possess, personally. (laughs) We think that's patience. This just kind of passive, okay, I can passively wait. That's what patience is. Friends, that is not the idea of the word that Paul used here. The word that Paul used here has the idea of a very active endurance. It's the endurance of somebody who's out there doing something, not somebody who's just waiting for something. So again, Paul is using a word. Let me read you. The William Barclay, an excellent Greek scholar, says, the Greek word here does not describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and bowed head and let a torrent of tor- troubles sweep over it in passive resignation. It describes the ability to bear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them. That's what Paul had. Endurance. Okay? What did you need endurance for? Well, he's going to list three sets of three things. This is what I need endurance for. First three things, tribulations, needs, and distresses. Okay, Paul, here's my resume as a minister of Christ. I've got patience, and I need patience in my tribulations, my needs, and distresses. You know what those describe? Just the general struggles of life. Paul was often stressed. Paul was often under pressure. Paul was often needy. Paul was often in distress. You know what the idea behind distress is? Is you just don't know what to do. You're just perplexed. You're, you're clueless. I mean, you've got all these problems, and I don't, know, I don't know what to do. Paul says, I was there all the time. This is my resume. I've had a lot of tribulations. I've had a lot of needs. I've had a lot of times where I didn't know what to do at all. There. There's my resume. Wow, Paul. What else you got, Mr. Apostle? Well, let me list you the next three. Verse 5 here. In stripes, imprisonments, and tumults. Oh, well... That helps, doesn't it? Paul continues his resume writing of sufferings directly inflicted by men. In other words, first, the first three sufferings, tribulations, needs, and distress, that's like general suffering. But now it's sufferings received at the hands of men. Stripes, that's whippings on his back. Imprisonments, we all know what that is. And tumults, well, that basically means a riotous mob that wants to kill him. Now, here's my resume. I've been whipped a lot of times. I've been in jail a lot. And everywhere I go, there's a mob that wants to kill me. All right? I need the patience. 
Then he goes on, verse 6, next 3, excuse me, verse 5. In labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Okay, so first it was general hardships. Then it was hardships brought on and by other people. You know what the third category is? Hardships that Paul himself freely chose. Did you notice that? Labors, sleeplessness, and fastings. No one made Paul work so hard or keep so many sleepless nights or go without food so often. These were true trials, but ones that Paul chose willingly because he was a co-worker with Jesus Christ. Now, don't get the feeling that Paul's complaining about this. He's not saying, oh man, feel sorry for me for all the sleepless nights I had. That's not it at all. He's just saying, listen, I'm just telling you, I've chosen a lot of these things. This is what I'm going through. I just think it's interesting to think about those three categories, the general trials of life, the trials inflicted on you by other people, and the trials you choose for yourself. Paul knew that he needed endurance, and he knew that many things in his life drew him to seek that endurance. Not every trial was the same. Some of them were just, you know, some of the things we go through in life, it's just under that that's life, right? You know, things happen, and what can you say? Life's hard sometimes. There, welcome to it. Other times, trials in our lives are inflicted on us by other people. I mean, other people are just busting our chops, being bad to us, and they're just inflicting trials on us. And then sometimes we inflict the trial upon ourselves, don't we? Sometimes for a noble reason, sometimes for not a very noble reason. But you know what? The glorious thing is, is it doesn't matter. God wants to glorify himself in your situation no matter what. Well, you think God says, well, you got yourself into this trial. I'm not helping you one bit. No way. Thank you, Jesus, that God doesn't say that. No, instead, Paul could find the endurance, the patience to make it through all of those kind of trials. Then he goes on. He's continuing on with his resume in verse 6, describing some of the, the positive things. I mean, he's kind of dealt with the negative things. Here's the positive things. Verse 6, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Well, praise God. You know, yes, Paul had the trials in greater measure than most men, but he also had the blessings in greater measure than most men. Isn't that true? So Paul honestly lists the trials. He honestly lists the glorious work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in his life. But I love when he comes down to verse 8. Oh, this is great. Because you know what you've got to have in every reference, don't you? Every, every resume. You've got to have references. I said, okay, well, let me give you my references. This is what people are saying about me. And this is what uh, the worldly people are saying about me, and this is what the Lord says about me. Okay? So Paul says, let me tell you what they say about me. Verse 8, by honor and dishonor by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul is listing his references, describing what the world thinks of him and what God thinks of him. So what does the world think of Paul? Look at the list. Dishonored, evil report, deceiver, unknown, dying, chastened, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. Right? That's what the world looked at Paul and saw. Here he is. There's your references. And then Paul says, you know what the Lord sees? You know how it really is? Let me tell you what the Lord sees. 
God described Paul in his reference like this, honor, good report, true, well-known, behold we live, not killed, always rejoicing, making many rich, possessing all things. Isn't that glorious? Now, you're reviewing the apostle's job resume, right? You're looking over this. I don't get this, Mr. Paul. I don't get this one bit. You got one group of people who say X, and you got the other group of people who say Y. I don't understand this. Which one is true? And Paul would say, you know what? They're both true. Just depends how you're looking at it. Let me show you what Paul would mean. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know what Paul says? You know what, man? You look at me on the outside? I guess that's what the world sees. That's what it's all about, man. Dishonored, evil report, deceivers, unknown, dying, chastened, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. Yeah, that's what I look like on the outside. Yeah. Then Paul says, you know what, though? Look at verse 18. If you want to look at the things which are not seen, if you want to see what God is doing behind the scene, if you want to have a spiritual sense, if the Lord would open up your eyes to see, you know what you'd see? You'd see honor. You'd see good report. You'd see true. You'd see well-known. You'd see that I live, that I'm not killed, that I'm always rejoicing, that I'm making many rich, and I possess everything, Paul says. So, you know, both of them are true. Bottom line is, which estimation is more important to you? Paul says, you look at me according to the world, and that's how I look. You look at me according to the Lord, and that's how I look. So what's more important to you? How are you going to look at it? Paul really mixes it up, beginning at verse 11 here of 2 Corinthians 6. He's going to speak to the Corinthians as a father. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak to you as children. You also be open. Paul has spent enough time laying down the principles. Now he's speaking plainly to the Corinthians and just You can sense the depth and the passion of his heart where he just says, Oh, Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Listen, I'm practicing what I'm preaching. I wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 15, that they should be speaking the truth in love. I'm doing the same thing with you. My heart's wide open to you. My heart is wide open. Everything's open. Let's lay it out on the line. I genuinely love you all with an open heart, Paul says, and so I'm going to speak openly to you. And this is what he says. Friends, you need to grasp onto what he says in verse 12. He says, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, let's understand the dynamic here. I think if we understand what Paul's saying, it's very, very uh, pregnant with insight here. Paul had this relationship full of conflict with the Corinthians. They didn't respect him. He would have to get down on them and back and forth, just trouble, you know, just conflict all the time. Now, if you were to ask the Corinthians, 
Do you want to get things right with the Apostle Paul? Sure we do. He's the guy who founded this church. Yeah, we want to get it right with him. He's the apostle. Yeah, let's get it right. Paul would just come around. We'd get it right. Go ask Paul. Paul, do you want to get things right with the Corinthians? Paul said, of course I do. I want it to be right. I founded that church. Let's, let's get things right. Paul says, eh, you know, we've just got to get together here. The Corinthians were blaming Paul for their problems. But you know what Paul says? Did you see that in verse 12? You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Let me tell you what I think was happening here. The Corinthian Christians were playing the victim before Paul. Now, Paul, out of godly necessity, had been firm with the Corinthians on previous occasions. We know that from taking a look at other passages in First and Second Corinthians, where Paul had to kind of hitch up his pants and say, now, you listen, guys, let me tell you something. You, you get it straight here, and no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, the Corinthian Christians are probably now claiming to be restricted by the hurt Paul has caused them. They were probably saying, we'd love to reconcile with you, Paul, but the pain you caused us restricts us. We just can't get over it. And you know what Paul says in response to that? Look at verse 12. You're not restricted by us. We're not in the way here. You see, the real problem was that the Corinthian Christians were restricted by their own affections. It wasn't that Paul didn't love them enough. That was their claim as a victim, right? You don't love us enough, Paul. No, it wasn't that Paul didn't love them enough. It was that they loved too much. Their own affections were restricting them. They say, what do you mean they love too much? How can anybody have too much affection? How can anybody do that? Well, what did they love too much? Two things. Really, in a way, it's just one thing, but it's two things. Two aspects of the same thing. You know what the Corinthians loved too much? Did they love Paul too much? No, they did not love Paul too much. Did they love God too much? No, nobody's loving God too much, right? You know what the Corinthian Christians loved too much? You know where their affliction, their, their, uh, where they were restricted by their own um, affections? They loved the world too much, and they loved themselves too much. That was the affection which was restricting them. So, they refused to deal with their selfish, worldly attitudes towards Paul. And so Paul says, listen, did you see what he says there at verse 13? Now, in return for the same, I speak, to you, speak as to children, you also be open. Paul wants to see the same self-searching honesty in the Corinthian Christians that he's just displayed to them. They had to do this to bring about a reconciliation. The rift between Paul and the Corinthian Christians could be healed, but it was in the hands of the Corinthian Christians to do it. They had to be open. Paul was saying, I am open. You need to be open. Now, you know what they had to be open to? They had to be open to being less loving. Less loving? Friends, not less loving to God, not less loving to Paul. No, they needed more love in both of those areas. You know where they needed less love? Less love to the world 
and less love to themselves. That's why Paul says, please notice the context, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You get the flow of the context? Bad relationship between Paul and the Corinthian Christians. They were blaming Paul, but Paul says, let me be open with you guys. The problem is you love too much, and what you love too much is the world and yourselves. So you cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's what he says in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, Paul is speaking to the overly broad affections of the Corinthian Christians. They had joined themselves to unbelievers, and this was affecting their reconciliation with Paul. The idea of not being unequally yoked together is based actually on an Old Testament scripture, Deuteronomy 22.9, where it says you shouldn't hitch together two different kinds of animals. That was in the Mosaic Law. Don't hitch together a, you know, a horse and an ox. Don't do it. I guess God thought it would be cruelty to animals, you know, for the ox to have to smell the horse breath all day, or, you know, the yoke wouldn't be the same. Whatever. God said, don't do that. And drawing on the same thought, Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, in what ways had the Corinthian Christians become unequally yoked together with unbelievers? How can we do this? Well, you know the most common way that this scripture is quoted, right? It's quoted in reference to marriage. That's the most common way. Interesting, Paul's really not saying anything about marriage in this context, is he? It certainly applies to the principle of marriage, and it's valid to quote this scripture in reference to marriage. But he's not specifically talking about marriage here. But it's a very, um, you know, good point that this scripture teaches that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you shouldn't marry somebody who's not. Why? Because you're better than them? Maybe not. They might be a nicer person than you are. But the bottom line is simply this. You're living your life for different purposes. Adam Clark said, A very wise and a very holy man was given his judgment on this point. Quoting, A man who is truly pious, marrying with an unconverted woman, will either draw back to perdition or have a cross during life. The same may be said of a pious woman marrying an unconverted man. Such a person cannot say this petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. They plunge into it of their own accord. But it's important for us to see that Paul really means much more here than just the idea of don't marry an unbeliever. It really applies to any environment where you'll let the world dictate and influence your thinking. You see, when we are being, as Romans 12, 2 says, conformed to this world, and when we're not being transformed by the renewing of our minds, 
You're joining together with unbelievers in an ungodly way. Friends, what this really speaks to is the issue of influence. Please understand what I'm saying here, friends. This is a very important point that you need to get away with. Paul is not suggesting that Christians never associate with unbelievers. He's not saying that for a moment. As a matter of fact, in other passages, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for example, Paul makes it specifically clear that he's not talking about that. He is not saying that Christians should avoid all association with unbelievers. And you know, can I just say that it is a blot on the body of Christ when you get Christians who think like this. Oh, you're not a Christian. You must have cooties. I can't, you must be the boogeyman. Well, you must have got up this morning and sacrificed a cat to the altar of secular humanism. Oh, you must want to steal my children. You're not a Christian. Ah! Oh, my friends. That, you know, it's just, that gives rise to the just most disgusting, holier than thou, this kind of, it's just a disgrace to the body of Christ that some Christians go around thinking that they're so holy that they can't be in the presence of somebody who's not as holy as they are. But friends, the principle is this. Jesus said that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Just like a ship should be in the water, but the water shouldn't be in the ship. Friends, if the ship isn't in the water, it ain't a ship. You can call it a house on dry dock, but it's not a ship unless it's in the water. By the same token, if the water's in the ship, it's not going to be a ship much longer. So you're in the world, but not of the world. If the world is influencing us, it is clear that we are unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And this unequal yoke, this ungodly influence can come through a lot of different places. Can come through a book, right? Can come through a movie, through a magazine. Could come through a television show. It could come through uh, worldly Christian friends. Let me say that again. It could come through worldly Christian friends. Friends, most Christians are far too careless about the things which they allow to influence their minds and their lives. There are things that shape your mind and shape your thinking. And most people don't give a second thought to what those things are. You have some friends that are just friends. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Go out to a movie with them. Yeah, great. Whatever. You have other friends which influence your thinking. You better watch out who those friends are that influence your thinking. They have a very powerful role in your life. You better get with it and make sure that you're not unequally yoked with an ungodly influence there. You have books. They are, you read, well, that's interesting. There's other things that you read that you allow to influence your thinking. You better watch out what that stuff is. Friends, it's just a matter of influence. Are we going to be conformed to this world or are we going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds? Now, look, this is where the rub is, isn't it? We all like to believe that we can be around ungodly influences as much as we want and never be influenced by them. Isn't that what we all want to believe? I know I do. You're probably just the same. We all want to tell ourselves that. 
well, I can just go there and I can be around all of it that I want. It doesn't rub off on me. We have to take seriously the words of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This comes back to it, friends. Are we being conformed to this world? Are we being transformed by the renewing of minds? But Pastor David, these friends of mine are Christians. Yeah, and you know what? I can see by you hanging around with those people, you're becoming more and more conformed to the world. You know what? As far as I'm concerned, you're unequally yoked. Because their influence in your life is making you more conformed to this world. What else are you going to call it? But they're Christians. Well, they need to get some things right in their life with God. Well, you know, this or that or that. Look, are you being conformed to this world? Are you being transformed by the Spirit of God? The Corinthian Christians were thinking like worldly people, not like godly people. You know that list that we went by, uh, the list that we went through in the last few verses of uh, honor, dishonor, evil report, good report? Who do you think the people were who were seeing Paul in such negative terms? Who do you think these worldly people were? Christians in the Corinthian church. They were thinking like worldly people. Friends, they gained this way of looking at life, or at least they stayed in this way of looking at life because of their ungodly associations, and Paul tells them to break those yokes of fellowship with the ungodly. Now, does that mean you treat them like they're lepers? And you everyone, no! You just say, I'm not going to allow them to influence my thinking. Period. He goes on, he repeats the idea of what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness. The Corinthian Christians were too loving, too affectionate, in the sense that they thought it was accepting of them to accept lawlessness with righteousness. Look how accepting we are. We'll accept lawlessness with righteousness. We'll accept darkness with light. We'll accept Belial along with Christ. Belial is just a kind of a Hebrew term, a term barred for the Hebrew, having to do with a person who's worthless or wicked. It's used probably in this context of Satan. And Paul's saying, what communion has light with darkness? What, like you want to strike this balance in your life? I want there to be balance in my life. Balance between light and darkness. Balance between truth and error. No! Friends, balance is perfect and appropriate in some things. In other places, that middle ground, well, that's just being lukewarm and the Lord will spew you out of his mouth. So he says, listen, what agreement has the temple of God with idols for? You are the temple of the living God. You know, a temple is supposed to be a holy place. A temple is a place that's supposed to be protected against things that would defile the holy place. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem, standing at the time Paul wrote this, I mean, you just couldn't go there and do whatever you wanted. There was a certain thing. I mean, you, on pain of death, if you messed up, there, if you started doing your own thing there at the temple precincts, you could be killed because it was a holy place. Paul says, listen, Temples are holy places and are protected against things that would defile them. We should protect our hearts and our minds as holy places before the Lord. So he quotes some scripture. He says, hey, God has said, I'll dwell with them and walk among them. God is in the midst of us. God is right here. You're his temple. Get serious about following him. Paul quotes Jeremiah 31 there in in verse 18 to Talk about the benefit here. He says, 
And if you'll do this, if you'll separate from these ungodly things, look at the payoff in verse 18. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You see, my friends, this call to come out from among them and to be separate from them deals with the problem of too much affection. Friends, we can really love too much. Now, let me say, you can't love God too much. You can't love his word too much. I'm even going to say this. You can't love his people too much. You can have a goofy, sappy love that's not love at all, but you can't genuinely agape love God's people too much, but you can love the world too much. And you can love the things of this world. You see, sometimes we think that we can take these hearts that are in love with this world, in love with the things of the world and the thinking of this world. We'll take these hearts and these minds and we'll just add Jesus to it. You know what Jesus says? Uh Uh-uh. I just don't want to be added to all that stuff in your life. I want you to come out from among that stuff and be separate to me. And then I'll be yours and you'll be mine. And I'll be like a father to you. I often wonder when somebody in their life is in the real depths and just hurting so badly, and they feel that God is so distant from them. Sometimes, not all the time, I don't mean to apply that by any means, but sometimes, it's just because you won't separate yourself under the Lord, and so you don't sense that he's a father to you. So he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Friends, It's the Lord Almighty that calls us to this. God wants us to understand that the sovereign Lord of heaven offers us adoption as his children if we'll separate to him. I don't presume for a minute to know the issues in your life that God deals with you on separation to him. But you know what they are because the Holy Spirit's talking to you about them right now. So let the Lord sink that deep down into your heart. Friends, Paul, throughout this whole section, has been talking to us about the way the world sees things and the way the Lord sees things. We need to have our minds set in the right place. And a lot of times it means separating ourselves from those worldly influences so that our minds can be in the right place before the Lord. And we can think God's thoughts after him. Have the mind of Christ. Yeah, I want it. Let's pray for that right now. Father, that's what we want, Lord God. We want the mind of Christ. And uh, we don't want to persuade Jesus to take our mind. We want to have his. So, Lord, won't you move in us and won't you just pour out your spirit upon us? We love you, Lord God. We thank you together tonight. And we just want to praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.